This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you feel about trash talk? I mean, you hear it all the time in sports, right? Maybe you even engage in it because we know sports fans love engaging in trash talk. But did you know there is actually a science to it and an historical reason for doing it? Now, Rafi Cohen is an author. The book is called Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage. (laughs) It's a great book title and joins us now to talk about that. Rafi, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Love the book title, first of all. How did you get into talking about trash talk? You know, it's I've always sort of been drawn to trash talk. I mean, I grew up in the 1990s, and that's when you know we think about sort of trash talk exploding across the sports landscape, especially in the NBA. You know, guys like Gary Payton and Reggie Miller, you know, just barking on the court and trying to get under you know their opponent's skin. And, you know, to me, there was always something fascinating about those guys. They were edgy. They were aggressive. But there was also something confident and charismatic. So I was drawn to it in that sense. But it also occurred to me that there had never been a book about trash talk. And as an amateur player, you know, just playing at the YMCA or pickup games, you could always tell there was something deeper happening beneath the surface. And I wanted to really understand what that was because, you know, culturally, we've always kind of dismissed trash talk as something frivolous and unserious. And but by doing that, we kind of misunderstand what's really happening beneath the surface. And so what did you learn when you dug into it? Well, what I learned is that trash talk is something that has always been part of us as human beings. You know, it goes back to the Bible and the Homeric poems. Basically, as long as we have been talking, we've probably been talking trash. (laughs) And It is really effectively, the way I put it, it is the language of competition. It is how people talk to one another when they are going head-to-head. It's how we negotiate these kinds of contests, these competitive spaces. And, you know, it's what happens is at at the most basic level, when you talk trash, you are presenting a challenge to your opponent. You are suggesting that they do not have what it takes, right? They do not have the resources to meet the demands. And this puts more pressure on the performance. It puts more pressure on their performance. It puts more pressure on your performance. And when I say pressure, you know, I don't mean that just in the kind of like general, vague, colloquial sense. I mean that in in the scientific sense. It literally raises the, the, the stress levels, the anxiety levels, the arousal, the physiological arousal that's happening within your body. And then there's a question of how are you going to handle that? Can you deal with that? Can you process that? Or are you going to fold under that pressure? Will it knock you out of your, of your optimal zone of functioning, which is, you know, describes a kind of peak performance state in sports psychology. So there is literally quite a lot happening there. Is there also a psychological understanding, Rafi, that uh, what we're talking about here is not, we're not, we don't mean it. We are engaging in this exercise. 
Yeah, well, well, there's. I think something that's important, you know, to understand is that, you know, that there it is inherently disrespectful on some level to talk trash, right? There's like a necessary violation because it's the suggestion that you don't have what it takes. But there's also a kind of inherent flattery or respect underneath it, right? We're competing as rivals. You know, I'm sort of acknowledging that you are my equal on this field, and I'm trying to play a mental game instead of a purely physical one with you. So, right, like as you suggest, you know, this is not something to take personally necessarily, because if you do take it personally, that's what might lead to unhelpful levels of pressure and stress. That's what might lead to emotional distraction or just cognitive distraction of another kind. And so, you know, that's, you know, but it's, but the other thing about that is it's really hard not to take these things personally. It's really hard not to get distracted. And so it, it is in fact a test. It is a test of how are you going to respond? Are you going to be able to perform under pressure or not? Is this something that has been done for a long time? Is it a more modern day phenomenon in sports? It has existed throughout time. I mean, the term itself, trash talk, was coined as best I can tell in 1981. The first use I could find was in a 1981 um, issue of the Washington Post. And then slowly, you know, over the next decade, it kind of creeped you know, into the national discourse in, you know, print publications until the year 1993, when it kind of exploded. And we had this, you know, phenomenon of sorts, where we were having trend stories written in Sports Illustrated and the New York Times Magazine, and you'd see them on pregame shows and studios talking about trash talk as this new thing, this, I mean, this brand new phenomenon that, that, that had never existed before in sports. But of course, that's not true. I mean, you can think about Muhammad Ali in the 1960s talking trash, right? We didn't have the term for it. You can think about hockey players chirping at one another. That's trash talk. We just didn't call it that way. It went by other names. But I mean, again, you can go back as far as the Bible. When David is confronting Goliath in the Bible, he literally says to him, you know, I will strike you down and cut off your head. And that was a strategic ploy to get Goliath to come close, to get upset and to come closer, to be provoked and to come within range of his shepherd's sling. So this is, it is literally something that has existed throughout time. We want to raise the stakes of competition. We want to suggest to our opponents that they don't have what it takes. We want them to react in a way that's going to be detrimental to their performance or, you know, conversely, we want to do something to hype ourselves up, right. to raise our own motivational levels, get ourselves up to an, uh, an arousal state where we will perform at our best. And so it is, it is new only in, in our sort of cultural conception of it. It is not new at all in terms of actual human behavior. Oh, so cool. Rafi, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Fascinating stuff. That is Rafi Kohan, the author of a book about trash talk. Also love the title. It's called Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage, which of course is trash talk. And it works, right? It definitely does. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to check in with our Vaughn Palmer, who is safe from all the snow. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And um, I'm looking out my window here in Vancouver and it's snowing. 
Yeah, it Nobody happens. told me it would be like this. How do people live like this? Uh, not very well, considering the chaos that ensues when it does snow here. So don't judge us. Don't judge us for that. I, I checked with my wife, Dale, this morning to see what's going on in Victoria. Um, and it did snow there. Uh, however, she says it's raining. So perhaps oh. the evidence will be gone by mid to late afternoon, which I gather won't be the case here in Vancouver. No, it's going to stay. Me, I'm on a panel discussion at midday today with Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman. And as far as I know, they haven't gotten over here yet. Oh, so I guess it's a panel discussion with Von Palmer. Shaw says, <laughs> I'm going to have to do the whole thing with sock puppets and pretending to be the two of them. But uh, I have been known to uh, fill dead air with talk, so uh, I'm not I'd, too Listen, worried. I would pay to see that. So you just let me know if you need somebody, and I'll come down there and help you out with that. <laughs> um, also, are you sure you don't want to talk about Surrey policing today? Because oh, I just was listening to it, and I was thinking, yeah, you know, <laughs> who would have thought this thing would go sideways again? Um, and again, the, may, the mayor uh, puts out a press release. It's uh, this continuing budget argument about finances. And really, who knows? Uh, a long time ago, this whole thing should have been sent to a forensic auditor who could give everybody some straight answers about things. I'm The one thing that surprises me is even with the new administrator that the government sent in to take control of this thing, it doesn't look like the provincial government is in control, and we're still squabbling over the budget numbers. I am very sorry, and I think a lot of people are, that you've got some well-meaning, capable officers uh, being ground up in this because whatever you think about the ideas, they took those jobs in, in good you know, faith. Good faith. Yeah. And they should be paid whatever else is happening here. So I think the mayor has yeah. overplayed her hand on this. But in general, man, oh, man, what a mess. There's really been nothing like it uh, so true. between the province and any municipality. Uh, well, I, I hard to think it, of one that's gone this badly. It's interesting that yesterday we did see pushback from the Surrey Police Union and the Surrey Police Board. And I should mention that we are actually speaking with Mike Sir, who is the uh, administrator for the Surrey Police Board. Uh, he's coming on the show in our seven o'clock hour this morning to talk. Let's talk actual budget numbers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. They're saying one thing, Good. they're all saying something else. So we'll hear from their side exactly what their numbers are and why they feel the mayor is misleading people. So that's coming up this morning. Uh, but you also wanted to talk about hydro. Yeah, so the premier made a major announcement last night. And uh, he made the announcement at 7.45 p.m., Simi. And you will know that in our industry, uh, with all the changes, there aren't too many reporters and editors working at 7.45 p.m. So it hasn't received a lot of attention. It's a major announcement. So the premier was speaking at a natural resource forum in Prince George last night, and he gave a speech at, as I say, just before 8 p.m., and they put out a press release, and the news is BC Hydro spending $36 
billion dollars over 10 years to upgrade the grid. Um, it's this is about uh, making sure the grid can handle uh, more electricity. Uh, adding a new transmission line between Prince George and Terrace uh, to service the uh, mines that are opening up in that area, uh, uh, doing more work to make uh, generating stations and dams safer, and getting right down to the local neighborhood grid, because, Simi, as you know, there's been concern that as we all switch to electric vehicles, the neighborhood grid may not be able to handle the load. So this doesn't actually add any generating capacity to deal with that problem with hydro, but it does mean we're going to have a more robust network to handle the electricity when it comes. And the other thing is uh, $36 billion, so this is an old trick by governments. That's that's over 10 years, right? It makes it sound bigger. Uh, it's still an awful lot of money. It's $3.6 billion a year, and uh, hydro is uh, going ahead with it. So uh, Premier says it'll create jobs. It certainly will. Um, putting up new transmission lines and fixing old ones and all that, dealing with safety at the dams, uh, that's going to employ workers. So it is a major economic announcement. Right. Okay. And he was also asked about his vision, right, for the year ahead? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he takes questions. And uh, (laughs) I have to say he has a great sense of humor. He started off by saying, I'm not going to speak too long tonight because I want to take questions. And besides... My wife tells me that emissions reduction begins at home. So <laughs> not going to say too much. It was a short speech. However, uh, he got asked about vision for the year ahead, and so the hydro plan is a big part of it, and the upgrade to the network is one thing. Uh, the hydro will also be calling for bids uh, for new generating capacity, uh, 3,000 gigawatt hours of capacity, and that is probably going to be mostly wind power, which works well with hydroelectric dams, because when the wind is blowing, you store water, and when it isn't, you spill water. So that's major. He also said hydrogen. Um, You're hearing hydrogen from everybody these days. Every government in the world has jumped on a bandwagon that hydrogen is going to solve a lot of our energy uh, needs in the future. Uh, Premier announced a project in Prince George yesterday where Uh, Clean hydrogen will be used to replace some of the emissions from the pulp mill there, the Canfor mill. So BC is doing some stuff. Um, He also talked about the need to upgrade skills for people to work on all these jobs in BC, uh, from housing through to uh, electrical work for BC Hydro. That's been a regular theme here for a long time, Simi, and we still haven't fully addressed it. Uh, We still haven't gotten the message through to every young person looking for a job that there's a lot of very good jobs out there in skills training and with really good benefits and you'll get hired and you'll get to work. So those are the big themes he touched on yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, He's going to be busy. He's here in Vancouver later this week giving a speech uh, to the Truck Loggers Association and I think there's another major announcement coming today in Prince George the Premier and the Jobs Minister are going to be announcing more money to help add manufacturing ability, capability, particularly in the forest sector in the province. So the province helps finance the buying of the equipment to add value to BC's wood products. 
Uh, okay, a few other things I wanted to ask you about from some of the comments that Premier David Eby has yeah. made in the last day or so. I found it really interesting that he was talking about um, that that the murder case uh, involving the techniques that the police are being questioned, or people are questioning the techniques that they used uh, to catch yeah. the suspect. Yeah, so this is the... Uh case where the 13-year-old girl, girl was murdered and the man has been sent to prison, uh, convicted of first-degree murder. I had a story this week from the Canadian press uh, that uh, provided some insight into how the police caught the fellow, and it, they used DNA evidence. But one of the things the police did was they started, they sampled DNA, uh, 150 people in the Kurdish community, and uh, that clue out of that involved the accused's brother, and then they get DNA from the accused. So this all came out in the wake of the trial, and uh, the Civil Liberties Association reaction was they're shocked, unconscionable, outrageous, violated the rights of all those people, and asked a whole bunch of questions about it. So it is a surprising revelation, and we went to the Premier. The Premier, as you know, Wilsimi, was the head of the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, and he came into office with a reputation as an activist, as somebody who, you know, would be hard on the police and skeptical. He'd written a book about how to sue, to sue the police. So what's his reaction? It's very interesting. So he says, look, uh, this case, uh, all of the evidence needed in this case was aired in court. Uh, British Columbians recoiled in horror when they heard about the horrific murder of the young woman there. Uh, And he says everything that the accused could use in his behalf was levied in court. And he said he was convicted and he's in jail and that's where he belongs. He says, now, after the trial is complete, to be going back to say to the police who made our community safe again, from this particular predator, that the police should not have done what they did? I really struggle with that analysis because this young woman's rights were profoundly and unalterably violated, as were the rights of her family and the community to safety. So he's standing behind the police on this one. He's standing behind how they handled it. And I would say this is one of those cases, Simi, where you see the distance David Eby has traveled from what he was before he got into politics, which was an activist and a critic of the police and a civil libertarian advocate. Uh, He's taken a very different approach as a premier. And I just just note it, right? Um, Whether that, you know, you can make what you want of the journey, but this is clearly somebody who is uh, capable of changing his mind and capable of taking a different view now that he's premier. Very true. Ron, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Sammy. And good luck today. That's Bob Palmer there, our Vancouver Sun columnist. Uh, He's actually in Vancouver uh, being on a panel today. Might be doing it by himself. Who knows? But I think it would be a pretty good show, actually. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, Stay in and maybe listen to the radio because we have our Scott Shantz joining us now. He's going to entertain us, right, Scott? Well, yeah. And Simi, what about as uh, my father used to tell me about life school?
Sure. Okay. Life school. Does I life got school, an A in the school of life. Does life school involve shoveling your sidewalk? <laughs> That's and one I, of the things. And I should mention that. Like, yes, shovel your sidewalk, but please check in on your neighbors who perhaps don't have the ability, maybe elderly neighbors or whatever you have there. Make sure that they can get some help too. too. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I have a neighbor who was like, hey, you want to pitch in on our snowblower? We're going to get a snowblower for like the community of like houses and stuff and then take turns using it. I thought that was kind of a cool idea. I hope you pitched in. Yeah, of course. Okay, good. Of course. Now, what are you talking about this morning? Yeah, I saw a really interesting study that I thought we should dig in on. It's about humor because we all like to laugh, right? Have a good laugh. And do you ever notice that sometimes the things that you think are funny, other people don't think are funny. And sometimes the other people that don't think that you're funny is often people of the opposite sex, right? I, I've, my example of this is the movie Dumb and Dumber. Yes. So, I don't find Dumb and Dumber that funny. What? Mildly amusing, but I find that men in general love uh, Dumb and Dumber. I love Dumb and Dumber. It's one of the funniest movies ever. Sure. I could okay. quote the whole thing. I watched it a million times. I actually did a Dumb and Dumber move just the other night where someone was talking to me and I just said I did the shh. Just go. Like he does in the airport. Yeah, I get it. You're right? proving my point here, it's but okay. It's so funny. It's <laughs> sure. so funny. But there's actually some science behind this about why men and women find different things funny. So I talked to Robin Dunbar. He's a psychological professor from Oxford University. He did a huge study on this, and I asked him, is it just the sexes, or are there, there's got to be other things that differentiate what we find funny, right? There are some complexities because partly it depends on age. There are striking age differences. That's kind of not too surprising because one category of, of uh, cartoons that we were exhibiting were political cartoons, you know, and understandably. And this was a, um exhibition of cartoons from the 1930s through to the 2010. So, you know, what made people laugh in the um, uh, politically in, in the 1930s or 1940s. This is not going to be the same as what makes us laugh now because they're, those kind of jokes are very contextual, you know, of the moment. And, you know, 10 years down the line, nobody, nobody can remember anymore what it was about and they're no longer seen as being funny. So it was, you know, uh, age therefore, you know, has a factor in that. But allowing for age, I guess the... One category of jokes that everybody, but sorry, the two sexes rather um, agreed about was actually completely was actually verbal jokes. So they found verbal jokes it actually not especially funny um, by comparison with some of the other categories. But they both agreed that uh, on the degree of funniness of them, um, the big differences were really that men prefer kind of visual slapstick type jokes and women prefer commentary, social commentary type jokes. So surprisingly, political commentary came very highly rated. Now, the things that we find funny, is that inherent or does that change? Like, is it possible to convince someone that something they don't think is funny is actually funny? I think the short answer is no. I mean, it's clear that there are changes over time, with age, as it were, that, uh, um, uh, you know, certain kinds of jokes uh, are preferred by older folk and, and other kinds of jokes maybe by younger folk. But by and large, what we saw uh, was really suggestive very strongly of the existing differences in the social styles of men and women. 
The one thing that did seem to uh, amuse men was, you know, rather single dimensional <laughs> uh, things. So they were basically just slapstick comedy. Whereas the things women pr preferred were much more complex and they were preferring different kinds of things as well. Um, uh, so th their sense of humor kind of looked as though it uh, was multidimensional. That mirrors very strongly sex differences in mate choice patterns. So women make very complex decisions trying to balance different traits that males have when they're selecting romantic partners, whereas men tend again tend to be one dimensional in the, in 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 what they rate most highly. Um, you know, so that's kind of one pointer in in that same direction. But I, I think the real issue here um, is is much more to do with the general differences in social style. So women tend to live in a much more focused uh, and dyadic sort of world. So they have lots of friends, groups of friends, but their relationships with those friends are one on one. And what seems to characterize those relationships is it matters most who you are as an individual, not what you are. So it's much more built around understanding the depth of your character, if you like. And, and in that sense, it's kind of more based on on emotional content of the relationship and so on. Whereas what characterizes men's social world is much more a kind of clubbishness in the sense that what matters is not you as an individual, but whether you belong to my club or not. Now, the definition of my club may be very, very um, simple, uh, as simple as, you know, can you get a bottle of beer from the table to your lips without spilling it? Uh, if you can, you're in my club. That's Robin Dunbar. He is a psychological professor from the University of Oxford. And yes, he would probably find Dumb and Dumber quite funny, Simmy. Oh, you think so, do you? He's a guy. And we're like you said, we're clubbish. If you are in, if you like the things that I like, you're in the club. I that's think that's all that everybody, though. We all do that. We look for the things where we share a sense of humor with other people on, right? Sure, yeah. But most women, they, the things that they share a sense of humor on, they tend to go deeper on, hmm. you know? They don't get like Dumb this, and Dumber. This merits a bigger discussion when Day. Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we're going to talk about Surrey policing. Uh, is there money or isn't there money? I mean, this is what it's come to in this increasingly ridiculous fight about policing in Surrey. And I say ridiculous because it feels that way. Watching all these sides quibble and go back and forth uh, over things like numbers when it could all be solved by all of them sitting down at a table like grown-ups and hashing it out for the benefit of Surrey. That's it. If all sides were willing to do that, this might actually get solved. But after talking with Peter German, the representative for the city of Surrey, it's clear that even getting agreement on that is problematic because this is what he said when I asked him about it. I guess it depends what you mean by to the table, Simi. What I mean I is, is, is the mayor and Surrey Council willing to say, okay, let's figure this out. This has gone on long enough. What's it going to take to solve this problem? So, you know, Surrey um, and, and Surrey Council have been dealing with this for a number of years. It is the province that has decided, uh, you know, it, it, it wants to proceed uh, with a transition that the municipality through its councillors, the majority of council, does not want. Um, uh, so, 
That's a no then? That's the reality of the situation. Yeah, I took that as a no when we talked to him on Tuesday. So then the mayor of Surrey yesterday comes out with a statement claiming, again, that the Surrey Police Service is way over budget and they weren't approved to hire 10 new officers and that's why they aren't getting the funding for it. Seems to me that's a discussion they could have all had in that room that I was talking about together, but, you know, here we are. The Surrey Police Board and the Surrey Police Union have both fired back on this, saying essentially that's not true and the mayor is playing with the numbers. So joining us now to talk about this is Mike Sir, the administrator for the Surrey Police Board. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. What is going on here? How come we can't even decide on what the numbers are? <laughs> yeah, no, it's very frustrating. I mean, I should note that the, the Mayor Locke was the chair of the Surrey Police uh, Board up until November 15th. So she's very well aware of the numbers and, and how everything had been played out. So if I can give you a little bit of context uh, regarding the budget and numbers. Yes. So very quickly, in 20, for 2023, the Surrey Police Board submitted a budget to Surrey Mayor and Council for $157.6 million. Ultimately, that was cut by 70%, and Surrey Police Service was given $48 million. So that was essentially a wind-down budget, simply to pay for about half a year until the end of July, because they figured that the RCMP would remain as the police of jurisdiction. Of course, as we know, in July, Mayor Farnworth came out and said that, no, the transition would continue, and Surrey Police Service would continue to move forward. Well, at that point, at the end of July, there's no money left, um, and the Mayor Locke would know this as a chair, um, to continue to operate for Surrey Police Service. So a letter was written by the Surrey Police Board to Mayor and Council in August saying we need approximately $75.4 million um, for the entire year. So an extra $27 million, just a status quo to get Surrey Police Service through to the end of the year. Um, the senior staff of the Surrey Police Service met with senior staff of the city saying, you know, we need to do this. Essentially, nothing was ever written, um, but it was ultimately agreed that, yeah, we would continue to find a status quo, no, no, you know, no additional growth or, or anything like that. Um, so it's been frustrating. So really, you know, for the last year and moving forward into 2024, um, we have not been moving forward the transition. But what I can say um, quickly, Simi, is that the authorized strength for the Surrey Police Service is 346 police officers. By the end of 2023, we actually had 345. We were down one. So those 10 officers were always hiring for attrition and people leaving for different opportunities. So we weren't over strength. Number two, we are going to be under budget of that $75.4 million. And again, that's not a growth budget. That's just simply holding um, what we have steady. And uh, so it's been very disappointing. I can imagine everyone's getting frustrated. I think everybody are, sorry, residents, right, in particular in hearing this. So when, when the mayor and the city is saying, oh, oh, sorry, police are way over budget, you're saying that's, that's, not, that's not true. We're, we have the same budget we've always had. Well, exactly. I mean, we've only given $48 million, and that's during the mayor's tenure as the chair of the board. And that was not enough for Surrey Police Service to continue for a full year. That was literally to the end of January, or sorry, July. So 75.4 is a budget that we're operating with and uh, that, w- that we believe that we actually need to maintain the status quo. Um, I have sent, a, a, you know, for adjudication to the Director of Police Service to adjudicate the 2023 budget, as we can under the Police Act, to, to get the province to, to step in and, and just resolve um, what the true budget is. But, you know, had we only let, stopped at $48 uh, million, um, as of the end of July, middle of August, Surrey Police Service would not be able to have paid any of their employees. So, you know, obviously there had to be agreement that, you know, once RCMP um, or the transition was going to continue, that a budget had to be realigned from the wind-down budget to supporting continuing on with operations. Mike, can you give us an idea? How challenging is it? Like my, I said, can't everybody just sit down in a room and hash this out? What prevents that from happening? 
Oh, I agree with you, Simi. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. But at the end of the day, um, you know, like you said, it, it, there's a lot of different players. There's three levels of governments, the Surrey RCMP, Surrey Police Service, Police Board. But uh, until ultimately we have where the mayor and the majority of council recognize that the transition is, is going to continue, um, I think we're going to have these challenges for quite a while moving forward, which is unfortunate. It, it's costing money for the transition. and But ultimately, we need the city of Surrey to, to recognize the transition, to assist with moving forward in the transition to sit at the table um, so we don't continue to have these disagreements. But, you know, I, I do know where there were people sitting at the table talking and then um, clearly, um, sorry, police or sorry, the uh, council and the mayor chose to uh, to fight this. So, yeah, what is the message then to you public? Because they've been very public. The mayor is very public about coming out and throwing numbers around and, you know, all of that. And this is really the first time that we've seen the Surrey policing side of things come out and say, well, no, no, th- this is what it actually is. So what is your message to the mayor and, and council? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we, it's just critically important to be transparent and, and for people to understand the numbers. Listen, I mean, I'm hearing 20 percent tax increase for the Surrey, you know, by keeping um, the Surrey Police Service. Um, the reality is that that's not true. And, and please just look at the numbers. I mean, you look at there's 12 municipalities that have municipal police departments from very large to very small. Um, they are all managing their budgets um, within um, the policing services. So. Um, you know, it, it, we need the true numbers. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it, we're playing a lot of defense right now, you know, as a Surrey Police Service and me as a board of, of just, you know, having to respond to this. And I, like you said, I would wish we can just come to some agreements that this transition is moving forward. But um, sadly, I think we're going to be delayed a bit longer with a judicial review in play. And, and uh, we'll continue to move forward. But like you said, for the residents of Surrey, for, you know, the people in the Surrey uh, Police Service, the RCMP, I mean, this has been a very long and, and frustrating process. Are the numbers that the mayor is throwing out there, are they inaccurate? Yes. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, the when she says that, uh, you know, we're substantially over budget, uh, well, number one, for three months of that, she was the chair of the board, so I think that's important to note. But number two is the Surrey Police Service was only provided, approved for $48 million dollars that was just for half a year because that was a wind down budget. So, of course, at, after a decision is made in August to move forward, they would require more money or, or they literally would have to shut down. Um, so that was agreed to. Letters were provided in August to the uh, mayor and council that, that, you know, we needed 75.4. And again, um, Surrey Police Service will close 2023 under that $75.4 million budget which again is a status quo and one under strength of, of the 346 police officers that they currently employ. Um, so they did not go over strength. And, and as a, a board, you know, civilian oversight, you know, governance, um, you know, that's, that's my role is, you know, to ensure that, you know, the Surrey's police services working within their budget, working within their authorized strength. And, uh, you know, and the mayor, you know, they, they don't, you know, it's to try to remove that interference of, you know, who you can hire, when you can hire. They just, at the end of the year, need to be under budget and, and at the authorized strength. So, and, right. and then, I think it's important too. I mean, you know, these 10 recruits, I, I feel so, um, it's heartbreaking to know how they've been caught up in this. These are people who are committed to serving and protecting Surrey. The timing of December 19th is not lost on anybody. It's just before Christmas. People are on holidays. We're trying to manage a very difficult situation and unfortunately they uh were pulled in into this uh political arena um and uh yeah it, it, it's been a very very tough month well we appreciate you setting the record straight thanks so much for joining us 
Thank you, Simi. That's Mike Sir, the Surrey Police Board Administrator, pushing back against the numbers and things that uh, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke has been saying, and I'm sure there will be more to come on that if you want to weigh in, Simi, at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There was a time, not that long ago, when there weren't a lot of rules about being a midwife here in BC. Now that changed back in the 1990s with the establishment of a College of BC Midwives. It was a hard-fought battle to make that happen. So for someone to call themselves a midwife when they are not following the rules and regulations, well, that is a serious concern. And it's why the BC College of Nurses and Midwives is speaking out, actually. Cynthia Johansson is the registrar and CEO and is with us now. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Let me first ask you, what is the snow situation like where you are? Oh, goodness. I'm on the North Shore, so it's at least 10 centimeters, if not more by now. (laughs) Oh, boy. Are people staying off the roads? Definitely. It's very quiet. (laughs) Okay, good to know that. So let's talk about this situation here. You have a lot of concerns about what's been going on here with the midwife situation. Yeah, it's um, it's it's quite concerning, which is why we are putting up public notifications and making sure that uh, we bring awareness to the issue. The college has received 19 cases in the last 20 months of unauthorized midwifery practice. So these are individuals who are practicing midwife, not having the qualifications or being registered to do so. Wow. Okay. So what is the concern with that? In the majority of those 19 cases, they have involved fetal or neonatal death. So the child has been lost. And we've also seen significant harm to the baby and the birthing parent. That's awful. So is it It that that people are not checking then when they hire a midwife? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I think this is what we're concerned about is that people are falling uh, victim to information on websites and promotional materials that misrepresent the qualifications and the skills of the individual that they are engaging in their birthing experience. Uh, so we really, really want to make the public aware. So what kind of rules and regulations are there if you want to be a practicing midwife in BC, Cynthia? So you need to complete a university degree. You need to go to school. You need to graduate from that program. You need to pass an exam. And then you maintain uh, professional competency requirements throughout your career that the college puts in place. And you, of course, maintain uh, your registration with the college. Um, And so these individuals that we've been investigating have done none of those things. They haven't completed uh, their education. They haven't registered with the college. So they are they are unqualified individuals. Now, how can people find that out? Is it that can they go online and and check to see if their midwife is qualified? Yes, absolutely. On the BC College of Nurses and Midwives website, there's a lookup tool for both nurses and midwives. Um, And if you go there and you're looking for the name, if you just plug in the name and hit search, if they don't come up, you can still phone us and we will still walk you through and help you identify if the person that you are seeking assistance from is registered with us or not. Usually if their name's not there, they're not registered. But we always encourage people, if there is even a question mark in their mind, to just give us a call. And so how is this happening? So how are they marketing themselves? Like, are they just calling themselves a midwife and people aren't checking? Or are they, are they using some other language? What's happening? Well, in some cases, absolutely, they're using the title midwife, which is restricted to individuals who are only registered with the college. 
In other cases, they're representing the work that they do as midwifery. Um, and, and anything that is that misleading is a concern to the college, especially when it's resulting, again, in serious harm to, to a baby or to a birthing person. Right. So when you talk about having a midwife, like you, you also talk about having access to health services, right? That you should be Absolutely. able to have, um, you can go to a hospital at any time if you are a midwife. Absolutely. They have credentials and privileges, as they're called, with hospitals in their area. Um, and they also, if they're supporting an at-home birth, they are coming to uh, the home with, like, I'll call it a hospital in a bag. They're bringing medication, they're bringing equipment, and they have relationships with local hospitals and other care providers so that if something goes amiss, they have the ability to connect that birthing person and the baby with immediate and medical attention. Are you concerned, Cynthia, that there's like misinformation out there about uh, the idea of being accredited? I'm always mindful that parents want to be able to make their own choice about their birthing experience. And midwives are educated and prepared to help parents and support their choice. Uh, so I think sometimes it's not only that there might be misinformation, but people are looking for perhaps um, a, a different way of, of delivering their baby and are looking for choice. Um, and so when people are trying to navigate those, I'll call it two different worlds, making sure that they are still able to find a qualified individual who's educated, trained, and prepared to help them support that choice, that's what midwives can do. So that's why we want to make sure that people stay aware and double-check that they've chosen somebody who's registered with the college. You mentioned 19 cases in 20 months. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Is that more than usual? Is that a definite spike that you're seeing? We are definitely seeing a spike, but we do believe that some of that's probably driven by the fact that we're bringing this to the public's attention because we have started to see these cases. And um, and the reports are coming from a range of places. Sometimes it's uh, family members uh, involved, uh, aware of the outcome of an experience. In other cases, it's uh, health practitioners who have been involved kind of after the fact because somebody has arrived at the hospital in distress. Um, And so they've been reporting uh, the concerns to the college. Um, And we also think that the public's becoming more aware because we are um, doing our very best to make sure that this gets into the public domain as much as possible. All right. Well, we'll do our part to spread the word. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it because, again, the outcomes are tragic. And if we can avoid any of them, that's a gift. Yes, it is. Thank you so much, Cynthia. That is Cynthia Johansson, Registrar and CEO of the BC College of Nurses and Midwives. They are seeing a a bit of a scary increase in the number of cases of babies being lost, essentially. And the fact is that people thought they'd hired a midwife. It's not a midwife because you have to have accreditation. You have to have the right education, pass those rules and regulations, be registered with the college. And they're finding out after the case that 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 has not been the case here with these 19, uh, 20 cases that they had there. So if you're considering a midwife or you know somebody who is, make sure they are accredited and registered with the BC College of Nurses and Midwives.